Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, as we read verses 1 to 20. Hear now the word of God. Then scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God? For the sake of your tradition. For God commanded, honor your your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out from the mouth This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see... That whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths upon our hearts this very morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may we hear your word today, not as those who honor you with our lips, but our heart is far from you. Instead, Engage our hearts to see that what you speak of here today is not simply an interesting matter for us to consider, not simply uh, a theological discussion by which we might come away smarter and with more things to say, but instead that we would have before us the very word of your beloved son who loved us and gave himself for us. Grant us your spirit that we might behold your word today and believe it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, I remember as I started off as a fresh reader of the Bible and of the New Testament that there were passages you'd read and you feel like you immediately have some familiarity with them. Uh, the, the discussion, the issues being debated, it, it connects with you and you feel like, yes, I understand what's going on here, right? The young man who loved his possessions feels like the sort of, of narrative that we can understand. It is hard to give up things. Um, but then you come to a passage like this one where all of it feels foreign. All of it feels foreign. Um, Think of, think of what feels foreign about this conversation. This is a conversation that took place 2,000 years ago. It involved ceremonies that we don't do. It involves hand washing, which most kids don't do. It involves traditions that we are unfamiliar with. It involves uh, a debate between religious groups that are not around today. Just all of it feels so distant from us. So when we read a passage like this, we're just grabbing and looking. What is the thing that that, that I I still can relate to this today? And sometimes we see a passage like this and we think, I don't know. I need the preacher to tell me, right? Um, What I want you to see today 
is that this whole passage is not just a relic of history, right? It's not just a snapshot of a moment in the history of Israel where people jockeyed over the discussion of hand washing. Because there are very relevant themes in this passage. All of us struggle on some level with what it looks like to live a life that's faithful to God. And all of us have people around us who have an idea of what they think it looks like to honor God with their lives. And if you're a Christian, then you do, or at least you should, care about pleasing God with your life. And when you have people around you who say, this is how you honor God. This is how you live for God. This is how you please God. We need a way to sort through the noise. Because that's what God created us for. He created us to glorify him. He created us to live for him. And so we want to know how to do that rightly. And a Christian should care about that. In this passage, Jesus is talking to people who have extremely specific expectations of what he should be doing and what his followers should be doing. And if those expectations don't come from scripture, Jesus has very strong words. Because fundamentally in this passage, Jesus is challenging us. And the challenge that's being set before us is this question. Are we guided by God's word or are we guided by what the culture around us says we should be doing? Right. So even today and perhaps especially today, these are profoundly relevant questions. You think the culture doesn't have expectations of how you should be acting. Well, Jesus lives in a culture that had expectations about how he should be acting and how he should be living. And so this is very relevant for us. And so today, Jesus deals with these two questions that his confrontation with the Pharisees and the scribes forces upon him. These these are questions he has to deal with. And so the first, and this is going to be our outline as well, and the first is the question of external tradition. And the second is the question of internal purity. External tradition, internal purity. Those are our points. So first today, Jesus has to face the question raised by external tradition. External tradition. Look at at the question that gets posed in verse 2. The Pharisees have been observing Jesus very closely. He's of great interest to them. And they've been watching. and 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 they and the scribes ask this question to Jesus. And it's not actually about him. It's actually a question about the disciples. It's an indirect way for them to confront Jesus without going at Jesus. Jesus is unassailable. He's hard to accuse of sin. But there is something strangely safe about talking about how his disciples live. And so the Pharisees ask this question, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Right away, first thing to see before we go any further Whatever it is they're about to ask about, they are not asking about why they break a scriptural command. They're not asking why they break a law that's written in the law of Moses, right? They're not accusing Jesus of breaking God's law. They don't even pretend to. They don't try to disguise it that way. They don't go to a text of scripture. They don't even quote a verse out of context. Um, They don't even try. What Jesus has seemingly broken then is a tradition of the elders. That's the phrase they use. It's a tradition of the elders that he's broken. And what that is, is it's it's something that has been practiced as a norm. It's a social expectation, but it is certainly not something taught in the scriptures as Jesus would have known them. Um, In Christian circles today, one word that I, I think is overused it's very overused is the word legalism, right? You've probably heard the word and, and thought that it was being overused or misused. The term legalism has, if I, might, if I might be a little bit simplistic, it has three senses. And two of them are real, actual occurrences of, of legalism. And one of them is actually not legalism at all. And I want to talk about those just for a moment before we go any further. One way the New Testament speaks of legalism is obedience that is done so we can have peace with God. Um, You just heard the song that we sang before our confession of sin today, not what my hands have done. And that that song specifically lays out the fact that nothing I do or say or pray can give me peace with God. 
But if you believe that a certain prayer or you believe that something you do or you believe that some sort of act of devotion can give you peace with God, that is legalism. That is legalism. Um, Be good and be forgiven. Do this ceremony, this work, and God will justify you. He'll be pleased with you. If you ask people on the streets, will you go to heaven someday? Um, they will say yes. Many of them will say yes. And, and if you, you ask why, they'll say, I will go to heaven because I'm a good person or at least because I have good intentions, right? If you ask them if they've sinned, they'll say yes usually. But then they will also say, but I have good intentions. I think I'm a good person. Deep down, my motivations are good, right? You see, legalism, it turns out, is actually very popular. It is, it's embedded in our DNA. Good people go to heaven, Bad people go to hell. And yet the book of Galatians and the book of Romans both deal with this kind of legalism, what you might call works righteousness legalism. Paul writes both of these letters, the book, the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, he writes both of these two churches because the Judaizers have wanted to have Jesus, of course. Of course, they see themselves as Christians. They want Jesus. They want his death. They want his resurrection plus works, right? Jesus plus obedience. Um, And the Judaizers didn't just want to please Jesus with their lives. They wanted their lives that, that, that they lived to be the ground upon which they had peace with God. So they thought, they thought it was possible that the death of Jesus made it possible for them to become the good people who deserved heaven. In other words, they thought Jesus made it possible for us to become the kind of people who deserve heaven. In other words, they thought Jesus would help them to deserve to be saved, but that at the end of the day, it was their work that would bring them peace with God. And it's easy for us to slip into that way of thinking. Right? This is what the group called the Judaizers taught. And if you have... They thought that if you had Jesus and good works, the Judaizers believed, you could have peace with God too. That is forgiveness by performance. That is forgiveness that has its ground in the sinner and their own perceived goodness. It's a a forgiveness that says you need Jesus' death, but Jesus' death also needs you to be a good person, to keep God's word, to live a life that pleases him, and then you'll have security, and then you'll have peace with God. In other words, this was no gospel at all, and Paul says that. He says it is no gospel at all. There is no good news in a message that affirms your need to please God in order to be rescued. It's a, it's a, it affirms the need for Jesus, but it denies the sufficiency of Jesus. We slip into this way of thinking every time we start to self-examine and worry that we have sinned too much, that we begin to look at our own hearts and our own lives, and because we haven't lived up to that standard, we think to ourselves, I am in big trouble. When we start to ground, when we start to think like that, we're grounding our peace instead of in the work of Jesus, we're grounding it in ourselves. We're looking at ourselves. We're making ourselves the foundation for these things. And Luther, you know, prior to the Reformation, Luther tried to live this way. And he found himself hating God because when he looked at God, all he saw was his sin. And all he saw was God's righteousness. And all he saw was judgment. Because he said, said, if it depends on my goodness, then I am condemned. Luther said, if my peace with God depends upon my own goodness, then I'm going to hell. Because I can never do enough. I can never love enough. I can never give enough. I can never sacrifice enough. I can never wash enough. I will never be enough to meet God's standard. And Luther saw that salvation by moralism is no salvation at all. And he also saw this because not just of his experience, but because he read the scripture and he saw what Paul said in Romans three, where he said, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And when Luther saw it, it opened the windows of heaven. So the New Testament 
rejects this kind of legalism, this sort of legalism by moralism. That's one thing. When we talk about legalism, that is one sense in which the word legalism gets used. And I think it's right for us to confront that kind of legalism. Now, sometimes, though, when people talk about legalism, they're mistakenly talking about just simple obedience to God's word. Right? Have you ever... Have you ever said to someone, you know, the Bible says we're not supposed to live like this. It's a sin. Or maybe you look at page five of our bulletin and you see which is the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it thou shalt not do any work thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant nor thy cattle or thy stranger that's within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. You read that passage? Are there people in your life who would say, that's legalism. That's legalism to believe that we should do that. I, I would be surprised if you've never had anyone in your life tell you that obeying the fourth commandment is legalism. Um. Yet that can't really be right, can it? Could it be that reading what God says in his word and seeking to please him is legalism? Um, Here's here's why that can't be legalism. Because if that's legalism, then Jesus was a legalist. Because Jesus was constantly calling people to obey God's word. He reminded people of what God said in his commands. He reminded the people of the two great commandments, for example, And if Jesus, in calling people to obey the two great commandments, to love God and love your neighbor, if he's doing that, and that's legalism, then Jesus is a legalist. In fact, you could find Jesus and the apostles telling Christians to keep all ten of the commandments in some form. If you went through the whole New Testament, you would find Jesus reaffirming all ten commandments. Clearly in itself, legalism can't just be the belief that we ought to seek to please God in the way that he shows us to in his word. This is a very common misunderstanding. If someone wants to break a commandment of God and they don't like the commandment of God, it's very easy to write it off and just say, well, to keep that one would be legalism. So that's a misunderstanding of legalism. That's not a New Testament understanding of legalism. Legalism is not when we look at the Bible and ask God what would please you. But there is, a, there is a type of legalism in scripture and it's the sort of legalism that's being used against Jesus here today. This is sort of the third type of legalism and it's what we have before us this morning. And it's a type of legalism where you call someone to do something that you expect of them even though it's not found in the Bible. To give you an example, um, when I was a young Christian, here was something that I dealt with. Now, this was more in the 90s where Christians sort of had their own everything. Christians had their own music. We had our own movies. We had our own cartoons. We had our own shows. Uh, We had our own everything. Now, you had to buy them at a Christian bookstore, and they were like $20 for a 30-minute VHS tape. It was insane the amount of money that parents spent on some of these things. But we had our own sort of subculture. And so if you stepped outside of that subculture and watched something the secular kids watched or listened to something the secular kids did, there was sort of – it was a faux pas. You weren't supposed to do that. Um, Specifically, at least in my little world, my little bubble, it had to do with Christian music, right? Basically, they said you shouldn't listen to anything except sacred music. Now, could someone show that to me from the Bible? Well, no, but where did that idea come from? It it came from our own heads. It came from good intentions. It came from good motivations. It came from a desire to honor God. Um, It was not a bad idea, they thought, to listen only to Christian music. And they couldn't think of a reason not to exclusively listen to Christian music. And so they said, really, you should only listen to Christian music. And the same went for movies and TV shows. Um, but what I was told, both as a, a new Christian and then uh, still as a new Christian at my Christian college and in the chapel services, was that God commands it. 
And we were encouraged to take anything we had that wasn't Christian and, and turn it in. And, and presumably it would get burned in a fire or something like that, right? There was no chapter or verse for it, but, but I was told this is a good thing. Why wouldn't you do it? And so, in essence, the person who is not participating in the extra-biblical command has to give a reason why they won't do the thing that's not in Scripture, but that seems like a good thing to do. Why would you not avoid this thing that might be bad? But here's the problem. If you tell someone they must, or else they're disobeying God, then you are falling into the same error if God hasn't said it himself, right? So, so this is actually an easy sort of legalism to fall into. This is a, an easy sort of legalism to fall into because what is the harm in restricting yourself in ways that are tighter than the boundaries that the Bible sets? Um, what's wrong with being scrupulous and what's wrong with encouraging other people to be scrupulous, right? Give a reason not to go the extra mile. Right? Give a reason not to. What reason can you possibly have? Right? Why would you not take your spiritual life this seriously? Why not show your commitment by even going beyond what God says? It sounds so persuasive. It sounds so dedicated. But this is precisely what Jesus is facing here. What's the harm in washing your hands? Why aren't you as serious about your spiritual life? Why don't you go the extra mile, Jesus? These disciples are following you. They're watching you. And they don't do the hand-washing tradition that we practice. What gives Jesus? Is this the sort of discipleship that you call people to, where you let your followers just live like a bunch of spiritually lazy softies with dirty hands? See, the specific tradition that Jesus' disciples are breaking in this case relates to washing their hands when they eat. We have records of this. We know what Matthew is talking about. There's a book called the Mishnah. Actually, it's a series of books. It's called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was the earliest major recording of oral traditions from Judaism. It dates back to about the 3rd century AD. The Mishnah is collected in six parts. I promise I'm not giving you the whole story on the Mishnah this morning. But the biggest part of the Mishnah is called the Tohorot. And the Toharot is devoted to questions about purification. And there are these extensive instructions on the sorts of things that can make you impure. What kind of activities to avoid. How to purify vessels. How to wash one's hands properly. How to remove impurity. So um, I, I read it so you don't have to. Um, just so you know, there are specific ways that the water is supposed to be poured. There is a specific amount of water that if it hasn't been poured, then you shouldn't regard the hands as being properly washed. Um, And so it gets very, very detailed. What Matthew is showing us here is that even though the Mishnah goes back 200 years after Jesus, these these washing rituals were around during the time of Christ. That's what Matthew is showing us is that it goes back that far. So what the Pharisees had done here is this. They took the very real laws of cleanliness for the priests serving in the temple. You could find commands to wash your hands in the Old Testament, but they are commands for the priests who are serving in the temple. And they took those commands for the priests and they said, what if everybody went above and beyond? What if everybody was ritually clean like the priests. We can do that. What's wrong with that? What reason would you have not to be? Um, We'll just make sure that we're always worthy of temple activity, even if that isn't our calling, right? So on on the Pharisees' behalf, it's an attempt to get closer to God by going above and beyond, holding yourselves to a higher standard than even God's word sets. Here's the thing about legalism. At least the legalism of the sort we're talking about here today. A legalistic command isn't a command explicitly found in Scripture, but it usually doesn't come out of nowhere either. It usually doesn't completely come totally out of left field where you go, where did you get that? Oftentimes, legalism is based on a principle found somewhere in Scripture, but taken further. 
Um, and so the reason why someone would do that is because it's meant to stop things from even becoming temptation. And so legalism very often has a grain of truth to it, a strong grain of truth that can be identifiable. So, for example, the people who told me to only listen to Christian music, they saw, by the way, I don't have a problem with listening to Christian music. They, they said only listen to it, though. They saw commands in the Bible that Christians should praise God in everything we do. They saw in Scripture the truth that unbelievers are blinded to the things of God. And so they made a new law. Don't listen to music from anyone who isn't always telling the truth about God all the time. Don't listen to music if someone's, from someone whose eyes are darkened, right? It makes sense. So there's a, there's a progression here. A scriptural principle gives rise to a non-scriptural, highly specific command that's meant to only prevent, not to not only prevent sin, but it's meant to prevent temptation. So here's another example, one that won't step on as many of our toes. Many of the church fathers whom I love in church history, I've been reading a biography of John Chrysostom. You hear me quote John Chrysostom an awful lot. I'm planning on keeping that up. But in the life of John Chrysostom, one of the things you saw was among him and his friends and many of the church fathers was this assumption that if you want to take God seriously, you have to live a celibate life and never get married. The problem was they pushed this on people even if they didn't have the gift of celibacy. And so what they did was they looked at each other and they implied, look, if you don't live a celibate life, you're not spiritually serious. You should die to yourself. You should set aside this aspect of your life. Think about this. That's not completely out of nowhere either, is it? You go to the writings of Paul and you see Paul says he wishes everyone could live as he did, as a single celibate person, right? Paul says, I wish everyone could be like that. How do you not extrapolate out from that that it's good to be single and it's good to be celibate? And so here's what happens. The fathers looked at, at, at Paul and he looked, they looked at Paul's single lifestyle and his example and they extrapolated out from that a new law. You may not serve God as a pastor or as an elder or a priest unless you are single. So here's what you have. A biblical principle, right? In this case, singleness is good if you're gifted for it. A biblical principle gives rise to a non-scriptural, highly specific command. Every pastor ought to be single. See, this kind of, of legalism doesn't come out of nowhere. It makes sense in some way. It's based on something that you could find somewhere in the scripture. And this is why Jesus concludes his discussion the way that he does. He points out in verses 3 to 6 that they don't get these laws out of nowhere but the Pharisees and scribes are extremely selective in how they obey God's word. So they have their favorite parts. And then they ignore the parts that they don't have such an easy time with. We all do this. We don't get to point at the Pharisees and say, hi, you guys are jerks, right? <laughs> uh, we all have our things in scripture that we're very, we're solid on. We feel good about it. We've got this part down. And then we've got the other parts that we look at it and we say, you know, uh, you know, you can't be good at everything. And so we're going <laughs> to focus on the stuff that I'm really good at, right? Um, we all do this. The Pharisees did it. We see it in ourselves. I see it in myself. I see it in my spiritual life. But what I really want you to notice is verse 9. Because Jesus says that Isaiah made a prophecy about these people. Imagine if God said to you, you know, there's a prophecy in the Bible about you. If, if you heard that, you would perk right up, right? Oh, really? Little old me? <laughs> no, do tell. What, what verse about, is about me in the Bible? I want to hear about myself, you know? And then he'd be like, this one. And you'd go, oh, I don't like that very much. It's an instant letdown, right? To find out that this verse is about you. It's a terrible prophecy to have said about you. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And there it is, right? He just, he just summarized the Pharisees and the scribes over the top, go the extra mile of spiritual life. They teach this rule even though the Bible doesn't. It is a commandment of men 
that they pretend God has given them. And they, they pretend other people are disobeying God when they don't do it. So let's say we realize we do this. Um, or we realize that others do this. What's the answer? The answer is for us to listen to Jesus here. We must be people of God's word who hold one another to the commandments of God's word when it speaks, but who are also modest when it comes to living out the implications of clear teachings in scripture. Um, When it comes to telling others what it should look like in their case to live these things out, it means, to mention Martin Luther again, the idea of Christian liberty. That there are liberty in how the specifics oftentimes are meant to be lived out. When scripture does not give an explicit direction. It also means that if you are a person with very sensitive views, sensitive scruples. If you're an opinionated person, we should be careful how we put those opinions on others. Um, Here's a hot button one. You must homeschool your kids. You must send your kids to private school. Uh, you must send your kids to public schools, right? I mean, you've got to do one of these, right? <laughs> or just don't school your kids. Um, so everyone has to do one of these. And you have probably met someone who feels very strongly about one of these three things. And you have probably felt judged because you were talking to someone who did one of those three and it wasn't the one you do, right? But here's what happens. When we prescribe one as a rule for all, we go beyond the words of Scripture and create a new law where God has not spoken. Listen to this. Don't listen to that. Watch this. Don't watch that. Eat this. Don't eat that. Play this instrument, not that instrument. Right? Whatever it is, if God hasn't spoken, you may be engaged in legalism. We also need to be very careful not to bind another person's conscience where God has not. So the only person who has the right to bind another person's conscience is God alone. And if God hasn't said it in his word, we should be very cautious not to bind the conscience where God has not. Uh, I know when I was in high school, I've used this example before, but when I was in high school, I wanted to date a girl who wasn't a Christian. And my Christian friends came to me and said, Adam, you know the Bible says that you can't date a non-Christian. And the immediate thought I had was, legalists. (laughs) I thought, I caught them. I caught the Pharisees. I found one. And then they said, but look look what it says over here. You shouldn't be unequally yoked together with someone who's not a believer. And so immediately I was corrected, right? I thought I was talking to legalists. And then they showed me, God's word, where God speaks to me. And you know what happened? The Holy Spirit spoke to me and I was convicted and I was confronted the way we're supposed to be by God's word. That's the way that it's supposed to, that's the way it's supposed to play out. We'll talk about more of this when we get to Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus talks about confronting people. But you see, the very word of God cuts through human traditions. And so if we believe God has said it, we need to go to the word and we need to be able to show it. That's the first thing today. External tradition. Jesus has to face down this pressure to go the extra mile. What's wrong with going the extra mile, Jesus? Now, second, Jesus has to face the question of internal purity. If you look at verse 10, once Jesus has dropped the mic on the Pharisees and the scribes, right? He's dropped it on them. He teaches the people a really valuable lesson. Look what Jesus says in verse 10. It says, and he called the people to come closer and he said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then go down to verse 17. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. So, to Jesus, Jesus is, here's what Jesus is really doing. He is getting down to the core problem in all of his debates with the Pharisees. If you want to see him really aim at the heart, that is exactly what he's doing here. He's, he is summarizing truly the whole problem with this group that he is constantly dealing with. 
They, they do not see where defilement comes from. They think it's on their hands. They think it's in the world around them. To Jesus, this is the real core lesson for everyone that we need to take away from his encounter with the Pharisees. They think touching things or coming into contact with things or being around things or being around people or not washing themselves can lead to uncleanness. They think that's where uncleanness comes from outside of themselves. The Pharisees think that it makes them impure to eat without washing their hands. Um, you know, this, is, this seems like something so ancient, you can't even imagine how there's a lesson here for us today. But if you really boil it down, the Pharisees think the problem is not them. They think the problem is not them. They think the problem is other people, unclean people, dirty people. They think it's uh, unclean things, dirty things. The problem is everywhere except in here. They have located the center of their problems. And it is not me. This is actually a very persistent attitude even today. Because... Ask most modern people what the biggest problem in their life is, and they will give you every answer except themselves. They will list, they will list off um, stuff that's in the news, right? Politicians, taxes. They'll point to their own past, right? A bad upbringing. Social media, it's wrecking me, right? Um, the blame list can go extremely long. But guess the answer that almost no one ever hears, hears, thinks of or hears from someone me, right? My own heart and my own sin are the biggest problem, right? I'm the problem. It's me. Who says that? Well, Taylor Swift says that. Uh, the seven of you that very naughty people that listen to secular music know that joke. Um, <laughs> but nobody says that today. No one really believes it deep down that they're the problem because they say there's so many problems around me. I know it's not me. And in that sense, we live in a world of Pharisees who cannot see themselves as their own biggest problem. So see the overlap here. In the Venn diagram, the modern people overlap with the Pharisees so much. And Jesus has a very different response to that way of thinking. What does he say? No, 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 says Jesus. Those things can't make you unclean. Those things don't have that power over you. The sin of your own heart makes you unclean. Jesus doesn't want us to be superstitious. That's what they are at this point. They are superstitious about substances. They're superstitious about the world around them. They're superstitious about the way that the supernatural around them is, is wreaking havoc on them and their spiritual lives. And what it comes and what, and, and what it means to come in contact with the wrong things. And yet sin is not a substance that you can get on you. Sin is not a substance that you can get in you. It emerges from your own heart attitude and it corrupts you like a fountain overflowing with filth. And he wants them to know they can't be polluted by eating the wrong things. They can't be polluted by keeping the wrong company. They can't be polluted by being in the wrong places. And of course, they can't be polluted because of something like unwashed hands. This explains why Jesus can Go into a house full of Pharisees, tax collectors, or with tax collectors and sinners, and, well, he ate meals with Pharisees too. Um, he became famous for eating meals with these people. He eats with sinners, he eats with tax collectors, and he becomes guilty by association with such people. He never gets drunk, but his enemies accuse him of being a drunkard. Why? Because of who he eats with. But because impurity comes from within, as Jesus says, being with these folks never pollutes him in the least bit. Now, you might think I'm saying that it doesn't matter how you live because nothing can pollute you. There's no such thing as sin. Is that the, is that the implication of all of this? No, no, no. Do not misunderstand. I want to correct two misunderstandings of what, I, what I'm saying or two possible misunderstandings. One misunderstanding would be that what we do or how we live doesn't matter at all, Right? But keep going down to verse 19. Jesus says, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. 
These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And so as Jesus says here, violations of God's commandments actually come out of the heart. You should still be concerned about your sin. But you need to be clear where it comes from. It is in the heart where sin originates, not outside of the heart. See, our own actions, whether they are spoken with the mouth or done with the body, express an inner state that is first true in our own heart. Our body and our actions express our own soul. People cannot see our hearts and we cannot judge the heart, can we? But we can see actions. And Jesus says here that out of the heart come the sort of things that show, show the world who we are. That prove what the state of our heart really is. You see, it does matter to Jesus how we live. It's why he, it's why he hates sin. It's why he never does sin. It's why sin is so horrible because it comes from the heart. Yes, it matters what we do. It matters how we live. Don't misunderstand Jesus here. He is not saying that holiness is not precious and that holiness does not matter. That's one misunderstanding. You've got to correct that. Another possible misunderstanding is this. The fact that things don't pollute us doesn't imply that we shouldn't use wisdom in what we're exposed to, where we go, or what we do. Right, And that's really important because if you heard the first part, you were probably like, wow, I think the pastor says I could do anything. Um, no. <laughs> the first point was really about the sort of specific commands we give other people. Right, That doesn't mean we don't use wisdom in our lives. Right, Jesus is not polluted by the sin of others, and yet his presence with sinners means he was constantly exposed to temptation. Jesus was exposed to more temptation than you or I ever will be because he was surrounded by its potential all the time. And every time he said no, it was a new opportunity to sin, right? We, we say, we say yes to sin. And we think at least for the moment that the sin, it goes away. Think of what happens to you though. When you say no to sin, it doesn't go away. What did, what did Alan talk about last week in the message? The devil returns at an opportune time. So the commandment, the, the, the temptations continue. And so uh, Jesus is constantly in situations that come with temptation. Each of us should know that while eating or drinking is not sin and keeping the wrong company is not sin and being in the wrong places isn't sin. Very often those situations will bring temptations with them. And this means in part using wisdom. To know when a situation will include a weight of temptation we are not prepared for. But more so, I think it includes the realization that all of our life will include temptation. And that real help to resist sin comes with the Spirit's help. And the knowledge that Christ, in Christ we resist sin, not from a place of fear, but from a place of security. That is a very different experience saying no to sin because of security instead of fear. But at rock bottom, we have got to take Jesus' lesson to heart. The world is wrong. Other things aren't the problem, really. I am my own worst problem. And my sin comes from within. And that is what is destroying me. In other words, we have to discard the world's preoccupation with finding and assigning the blame. We have to put that aside. We have to become, like Jesus says here, aware that each of our hearts is a fountain of sin and the cause of our griefs. We don't like to talk that way. I, I mean, we're, we're taught in the age that we live in that we should think good things about ourselves, right? We're supposed to build ourselves up. We're supposed to say affirmative things about ourselves. Uh, to quote the famous American psychologist, Stuart Smalley, right? I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. And we're, we're supposed to look ourselves in the mirror and say that. Jesus is, is being confronted by a cultural message in this passage. We are talking about the cultural messages we have to battle. Jesus has to battle a cultural message too. But we also have to confront our, our own culture's messages. And our culture embraces self-love. And our culture can't fathom a person saying that they're a sinner. Perhaps 
ignoring the problems of our own heart has not gone so well for us. I might suggest that we are seeing the results of trying to live these things out. Rising depression radically at radical levels. A sense of meaninglessness, directionlessness, a deep sadness that people don't quite understand and that their psychologists are ultimately at a loss to explain. Ignoring our purpose and ignoring our sin hasn't made us more free. It's just set us against ourselves and it's left us empty and lonely and in denial. Right? We live against the grain of the universe. We lie to ourselves that we are fine. And then we wonder why even deep down in our own hearts, we don't buy what we're trying to sell. I am great. I'm amazing. I'm enough. Right? It sounds so wonderful if it were true. But if it's not then we're just going to find ourselves smiling through the tears. Now, here's the real answer. We have to tell the hard truth, even if it goes against the culture around us. Jesus goes against his culture. We have to do it too. Even if it means admitting hard things about ourselves, our heart is where the sin in our lives comes from. My heart is a gross Fountain, And it will keep running if we don't address it. What should we do then? Jesus says we have to face the truth. Out of the heart, out of the mouth proceeds. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. If you want to know where these problems in your life are coming from, Jesus is giving the answer here if you are willing to hear it. Jesus is saying you break the Ten Commandments all the time. You do it because it's in your heart to do it. So address the heart. Stop washing your hands. Stop performing. You need a washed heart. And you can't do that for yourself, by the way. He said it a few weeks ago, didn't he? He said, I know the answer. He said, come to me and I will give you rest. He himself is presenting himself as the answer, not washing your hands, not listening to the culture. He says, listen to God's word. Listen to me. Here's what's so wild. And and I hope you see this this morning. The Pharisees will do anything they can to avoid uncleanness. If you ask them, what is the thing that you fear more than anything else? I think the Pharisees would say, I fear uncleanness. To avoid being polluted from outside of themselves. They are desperate to make sure they avoid any kind of, let's call it, alien unrighteousness. Now, I don't mean a space alien unrighteousness. I know that's in the news, but not talking about that. Alien unrighteousness is unrighteousness that didn't start with you. It's not yours. It's not properly yours. Any pollution that comes from outside of them. And that's what they're afraid of. They're afraid an alien unrighteousness is going to come upon them. All along on the inside, they're filled up with dead men's bones. They want to be qualified for temple service like priests, right? That's why they do this little hand washing jig every time that they eat. Think of that. They are the, that is the thing they are most afraid of is an alien unrighteousness coming upon them. I just want you to compare them for a moment here to Jesus. Because Jesus is the opposite of them on, on every level here. Jesus is not full of dead men's bones. He is holy. He is, he is living. He is righteous. He is light. He can't even be convicted of one single sin. He challenges them. They can't do it. He's absolutely righteous. See, unlike, unlike his opponents... And unlike the rest of us, Jesus was tempted from without, but never from within. Right? The, the possibility of sinning, temptations, they came to Jesus, but they didn't come from in here. They came from the world outside of him. Nothing wicked or evil or unrighteous or nasty ever rose up in his heart. He is so the opposite of us. He was absolutely clean. He had no uncleanness And then what happened? The Pharisees try to keep from being defiled. What happens to Jesus? He goes to the cross and is absolutely defiled. 
See, the Pharisees fear some evil coming from outside and polluting them. And Jesus goes to the cross willingly. And all our sins are put upon him. And he becomes defiled. He receives the very thing that the Pharisees spend their whole lives trying to avoid. The Pharisees are not willing to be corrupted by sin from without. They flee from it. Jesus runs towards it. How does Paul summarize this? He says, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The very thing that the Pharisees feared so much was the very thing Jesus willingly endured and it was the cup he drank to the bottom. He experienced true defilement. He was defiled for us. We say, you know, you have the words of the benediction, of course. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. That's the benediction. Jesus receives the malediction. The Lord curse you. The Lord turn his face away from you. The Lord turn his wrath upon you. That's what Jesus receives. See, the Pharisees, they want to cosplay at being priests. And so they... They wash their hands like they're priests. They're pretending to be priests. It's almost like Jesus would say, not only your hands, but also your hands and your head. When we come to Christ for righteousness, he does not just cleanse an area of our lives. He washes all of us because he's not a hand washer. He's our great high priest. At the cross, Jesus takes upon himself our alien unrighteousness the sin that came from outside of him and that never came from within him and he was polluted by it and he was crucified. Our sin was upon him. What does Paul say in Galatians 2? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The pure Unpolluted substitute willingly goes to the cross, bears our uncleanness, bears our unrighteousness, and is put to death for us. And now through faith in Christ alone, we walk free because of his alien righteousness. The the righteousness that he gives to undeserving people like us. It has been given to us. And now he doesn't just wash our hands, but he cleanses all of us. By the washing of regeneration. Do you see this this morning? That the worst fear of the Pharisees is the mission of Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we need the perfect work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We need the peace of That he provides for us because in him all of our uncleanness is, is washed away. In him all of our sin, all of our record, all of our history is carried to that cross and crucified once and for all so that we go free. We praise you, O God, that when the time came, he did not flee, but came to our perfect rescue. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen.